I would say the, the number one thing that I've observed and that I would recommend is to define your marketplace incredibly narrowly and incredibly tightly in the early days and then expand out in concentric circles. It's easy to have empathy for the, for the relatively small number of people who work for you. But having empathy for your customers, the two million people who count on us every single day, they needed us to make some pretty dramatic change. Automation is, is transforming the nature of work, but creativity can't be automated. So the idea that you can harness your creative energy and turn that into a global business that you run from your living room, I think that's incredibly powerful. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Today on the show, we have Josh Silverman, CEO of Etsy since 2017. Etsy, as many of you know, is a very innovative online marketplace that connects millions of passionate, creative sellers and buyers around the world. Etsy's mission is to keep commerce human, and it's become the global destination for unique and creative goods. The company has 3.1 million active sellers and 60.3 million active buyers from nearly around every country of the world. In 2019, 40% of Etsy sellers were located outside the U.S., and 83% of its sellers were women. Uh, Josh has two decades of leadership experience, including growing Uh, consumer technology companies, and scaling global marketplaces. Before Etsy, he served as president of consumer products and services at Amex. He was CEO of Skype, and prior to that, CEO of Shopping.com. He's also held various executive roles at eBay. Earlier in his career, Josh co-founded Evite nearly 20 years ago, where he also served as the company's first CEO until its sale to IAC. Josh and I were also Stanford Business School classmates, so this episode was a really fun and great reunion for us. On today's episode, I have a fantastic co-host, my GGV partner, Hans Tung, who has a great podcast of his own called Evolving for the Next Billion. And this episode is cross-referenced on both Founder Real Talk and Next Billion, which is a great podcast you should check out. We interviewed Josh together, as we've done previously with Max Levchin of Affirm and Nate Placharczyk at Airbnb. So without further ado, welcome to today's show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I understand you and uh, Glenn were uh, classmates at Stepford GSP, so we're going to ask some questions for you guys toward the end of the show. Great. In the meantime, we'll, we'll, we'll start with... Uh... <laughs> Hans, you didn't tell us we were going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have time to think about it. We think about it for, throughout the show, throughout the podcast today. What Etsy offers for consumers are quite unique in many unique creative and vintage items. They're not easy to find in other places, not even on eBay. So this nature made many people skeptical about the size of the market. How big could this be or is it very niche? You work at eBay and Skype before, I've seen the executives, so you know what Big Ten looks like. What about the company that decided you enough to join initially as a board member in 2016 and then as a CEO in 2017? Yeah, I mean, what inspired me about Etsy is the purpose that it fulfills for its customers, which I think is really unique and really powerful. I've had the good fortune or the privilege to be able to come into a couple of companies now and try to unlock value. And really what I try to start with is what role do we play in the universe? Why is it different than everyone else? And is that meaningful? And 
If I go back to Skype, for example, when I joined Skype, the sort of tagline of the mission of Skype was the whole world can talk for free. So it's about free phone calls. And telco was kind of going to free anyway. And that that felt like not a very exciting or very inspirational mission. But when you go and you talk to Skype customers, what they said was, I serve in the military and I had to move eight time zones away from my family, but I still got to to talk with my kids or all of these very emotional moving stories. And what my team and I came to was that it's about being together when you can't be in the same room. And that turns out to be a really powerful mission that means more and more as the world is traveling more and is becoming more and more disconnected. And so with that mission in mind, we really pivoted Skype to be about video instead of audio. And that unlocked the whole next chapter for Skype. So with that kind of mindset at Etsy, when I joined, it was about handmade. And I don't think anybody, I don't think there's a market for handmade. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to buy something handmade and anything will do. They have a mission in mind. I want to buy a gift for my partner. I want to buy something for my living room to spruce it up. And where Etsy stands out is it's the opportunity to make things special, which otherwise are commoditized. What we came to for the mission of Etsy was keeping commerce human. We sum up everything Etsy does in three words, keeping commerce human. And I think in a world that's becoming more disposable, more commoditized, you can buy almost anything you want. It'll arrive really fast. It'll be super cheap and you'll have forgotten about it two seconds after you use it and then it'll be in a landfill. And that's where we're going more and more. And we're buying more and more stuff from fewer and fewer places that's ever more disposable. And the notion that I can buy something that's made just for me, that brings me joy, that injects some joy into my everyday life. And in doing so, I support a maker. I support a creator. I think that's really important. And, you know, if you think about where where the world is going in terms of work, automation is, is transforming the nature of work. But creativity can't be automated. So the idea that you can harness your creative energy and turn that into a global business that you run from your living room, I think that's incredibly powerful. And so I think there's real meaning and real purpose in Etsy. And I think that meaning and purpose is going to become even bigger as Amazon and Alibaba get ever bigger. I think the role for Etsy is actually going to become ever larger as sort of the antidote to that. Very cool. Josh, the place you have Etsy today versus the Etsy that you inherited are pretty different companies. And like you talked about, one of the first things you did was was reposition. But I want to just talk about something you've said about focus. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, when they know they need to change things, start to expand the number of items on their list and try to optimize in a hundred different ways to try to turn things around. You inherited a company that needed some changing. And you've said that you actually like simplified. You really you know, tried to focus the company in, in a couple of key ways. I'm curious if you could walk us through how you did, like how you decided what to focus on, how you killed projects, very hard to do, and what the benefits were. In particular, maybe talk about the buyer and how the buyer became a different kind of focus for the company. Yeah. Okay. Let me try to tackle all of that. And, and I think it, it, it is super relevant. So when I joined Etsy, we had been public for about, call it a year and a half. 
sales on Etsy had been decelerating every quarter for the past like eight quarters. And in fact, the quarter that I joined, sales only grew 11% year over year. And so the team had sort of come to the conclusion that, well, I guess we're about as big as we can be. Like the handmade market must be mature. And so we got to go do a bunch of other things. And so they started to place a bunch of bets in a bunch of other areas. It was sort of like venture bets. And I think, Glenn, to your point, that's I've seen this a lot. It feels really common. Let's like diversify away. I felt like Etsy was at the very early stages of what we could be. And that, in fact, our decelerating growth was because of insufficient focus and insufficient execution. And diversifying away was really harming us. And in fact, in a lot of the diversification efforts, you're kind of starting all over again in areas where you don't have a lot of natural advantage. And what's the point of that? (laughs) So we needed to do a lot fewer things. So the challenge I made the team is what is the fewest things we need to do well to succeed? What is the fewest things we need to do well to succeed? Point one. Point two, then, if you're going to say fewest things we need to do to succeed, you've got to define success. And the company had a bunch of metrics it tracked, you know, 10, 12. It was definitely a data-driven company, 10 or 12 different metrics, and all of them sort of mattered. And the problem with having 10 metrics or even five metrics that all sort of matter equally is if you have a project and you can ladder it up to any one of those five metrics, you can make the case for why you want to do it. And in other words, if it's a good idea, you're going to do it. And that's way too low a bar. If it's a good idea, it's a candidate to be on a long list of good ideas from which you're going to handpick the fewest you need to do. And that's an entirely different mindset. So I picked one metric that mattered. In our case, it's called gross merchandise sales. Gross merchandise sales is the total volume of sales on our platform. And so that's a metric of customer success. Our buyers finding things they love and our sellers making sales. GMS. And I said, that is the only metric that matters in this company right now. And if you say GMS is the metric that matters, what are the fewest things we need to do to move GMS? You suddenly get to a very different outcome. And I said through some thresholds. So it needs to produce at least $10 million of incremental GMS in the next 24 months for us to do it. Now, I'm not saying we're going to do everything that will produce $10 million of GMS, because, again, that would be too low a bar. I'm saying I'm not even going to consider it if it won't produce $10 million of incremental GMS. So, again, how do you go from the worthwhile many to the vital few? The worthwhile many are all of the projects which are good ideas. They're aligned with your strategy. They have a positive ROI, and you'd feel comfortable standing in front of the board and advocating for them. And if you do all of those projects, you're dead in the water. So you've got to take the worthwhile many and you've got to say, now, of all of those, what are the few that I'm going to prioritize right now and why? And so we called that list to say, what are the things that we're going to do right now and why? And the result was we stopped about 60% of all the projects in the company. Wow. It was massive. Tumultuous probably for your employee base, I bet. Within my fifth week, well, we did a pretty significant layoff. We laid off about 22% of the staff. And I'd say 80 to 90% of the remaining people had new jobs. So it was enormously tumultuous and very, very difficult for the staff. And I don't want to undersell that. I mean, that was, 
that level of change you don't do unless you unless you really need to. But it did signal real change to the team. And we had, you know, I think if we didn't make dramatic change quickly, we were going to get bought and we were going to get bought for pennies on the dollar. And I think the story of Etsy would have been it failed. And the only conversation about Etsy would have been, why did it fail? And at the time, there are 2 million sellers who wake up every day counting on Etsy to put food on the table for their for their families. Thinking about who do we have empathy for, and it was really hard on the, the thousand people who are lucky enough to work for Etsy. This was, was really hard on them. But it's easy to have empathy for the, for the relatively small number of people who work for you. But having empathy for your customers, the two million people who count on us every single day, they needed us to make some pretty dramatic change. And so we had to go through some hard things ourselves in order to do that. And to give you just one example, the Etsy team had a a good idea to create a new marketplace for craft supplies. It's called Etsy Studio. And um, you'd go to etsystudio.com and you could buy craft supplies. And, And given that we already had a lot of people who sold craft supplies on Etsy, and we already had a lot of people who bought craft supplies on Etsy, creating a standalone marketplace for craft supplies was not at all a crazy idea. And we had a a large number of people, over 100 people, who'd spent 18 months building this product. And they launched it on Friday. I started on Tuesday, and I redirected everyone off of it on Friday. 100 people on my third day. And it's because when we looked at what were the things that were going to drive GMS in the core business, this was not one of them. It's not that it wasn't a good idea. It just wasn't one of the things that was the most important ideas. The ability to rack and stack everything versus GMS was incredibly helpful. We declared some things we called ambulances. So there were 26 projects which looked like, and by the way, I started with 800 projects and we killed about 60% of them. These are either things that were in our product pipeline or our marketing pipeline. And But 26 of those 800 looked like they had a chance to materially impact GMS in days or weeks. And so I called those ambulances because when an ambulance drives down the road, everyone has to get out of the way. So I said, those teams have to be fully staffed by tomorrow with top talent and no project is allowed to get in their way. Any dependency, they win in every dependency. And we shipped those things within five or six weeks. And lo and behold, within four or five weeks after that, they were actually showing promise. And we saw that GMS was accelerating again for the first time in two years. GMS was growing faster month over month. And that's what gave us real hope that there was a big opportunity here and that it was sort of worth the pain to to keep going. Amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. I know it must have been a very difficult time, but also probably a time with a lot of energy in the company. Speaking of energy, would love for you to talk a little bit about how the Etsy community was given that we're, you know, we're still in the pandemic. When face masks became standard wear, supply constraints on traditional supply chains made sort of supply in the market and the demand pretty difficult. And your sellers mobilized rapidly and you guys have become a, a big seller. And I think it's kind of an interesting case study. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and what it tells you about, about the marketplace you've built. Yeah, I mean, to use a World War II reference, I think this was kind of our Dunkirk, for those who are familiar with the story. You know, cottage industry saved the British Army, right? So in our case, cottage industry, Etsy's ability to mobilize tiny individual sellers to come to the rescue of the U.S. and Europe 
I think it exemplifies what Etsy does best and in its best moments. But when we were living it, it was a lot of hard choices, you know, as, as you're not you wouldn't be surprised. So on April 2nd, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, the CDC, changed its guidelines to say that they now recommend that Americans wear fabric face masks. And so we woke up that morning to discover crazy amounts of sales on Etsy and crazy amounts of traffic on Etsy. You know, I get I get a report in my email inbox every four hours. And so I wake up in the morning and, and if I haven't checked it all through the night and I can see like traffic and it was just crazy. And so I'm on the Slack with my team by 15 trying to diagnose what's going on. And it turns out there's this massive surge in demand for masks. And at that moment, if you searched for masks on Etsy, you saw Halloween masks or face cream which were the only two things that masks had ever meant up until April 2nd, right? And suddenly the word masks has changed. Yeah, neither would have been that helpful. Uh, <laughs> it's a really unsatisfying search result. And like I'm searching at 8.15 in the morning and I'm getting a bunch of Halloween masks and face masks and I'm thinking, and, and face cream. And I'm thinking there are millions of people logging into our site this hour who are getting this search result and it's terrible. And so immediately I got my team together and we talked about it and we had a really good, rigorous debate. And there was a lot of push for focus, focus, focus. Face masks are only going to be a thing for probably a week. And Josh, you've been all about focus and the fewest thing that matter and the vital few. And so let's not get distracted by this. Let's not deal with this. And I think that was a very valid point of view at the time. I have a lot of heart for that point of view. <laughs> I appreciate that that's now an instinct of the team. I love it. But it felt like a moment that could be brand defining for Etsy, you know, that it exemplifies what we stand for. And so I thought this mask surge would last for a week or two, but it was still worth us rising to the challenge to deliver a great experience because of the sort of importance of the moment. And so we diverted the whole search team to redefine sort of hard code what masks mean. We had sellers who, if you you might have sold face masks before, we had a few sellers who did, and they might have sold one face mask a day. Suddenly, they're selling like 300 face masks that day. And so how do we make sure they can still fulfill and deliver for buyers? So we had a whole team we had to put on making sure our sellers could actually fulfill. We put out the word to sellers to start making face masks. We sent an email to all of our sellers saying, sort of calling all sellers Here's how you do it. We had to scrub our site and make sure that our sellers were not making medical claims. So you can't have sellers saying this face mask is going to protect you from COVID because we don't know that it does. And there's inconclusive research on that. So we really took a very large percentage of the company and redirected them to face masks for pretty much the whole month of April. Turns out we were right that it was a brand moment for Etsy. We were wrong about the duration. Now we're, call it, four months later, and we've sold about $500 million with the face masks. 500, half a billion dollars of just face masks in the past four months. And, and you know, there's 20,000 sellers who have made a material amount of money selling face masks. And so that's great because they're putting food on the table at a time when they're suffering from a lot of other economic uh, hardships. It's really worked out well. It's really worked out well for everyone. During COVID-19, we definitely see an acceleration of e-commerce, especially in the U.S. Before, a lot of people thought that it would take a while for U.S. to adopt mobile payment and other mobile internet services because offline was working so well. Obviously, during COVID-19, all the offline, most of the offline shut down. And you guys notice a 130% 
year-on-year growth in revenue at the peak of the pandemic. Do you see this as a permanent behavior? Do you see that consumer behavior has changed? How do you plan to continue to build on your current momentum? Just full disclosure, during COVID-19, I've become a personal shareholder of your stock. Uh. <laughs> and, and I'm already late because since you joined the company, you have already 8x, 7x the stock before the, the pandemic. And now it's the 10x, when, when, when the stock price 10x when you first joined. So you're doing an incredible job. So we're already late. Show. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's better be late than never. Hans, I don't think you're late. I think you're early. I very much hope that five and 10 years from now, you look back and say, I got in at Etsy in the summer of 2020 and good for me. But, you know, I think that's a great question. I'd actually roll back by one month and say that what we now know is that the pandemic caused a tremendous tailwind for all of e-commerce, including Etsy. But in March, it didn't feel that way. So in March in the United States, that's when the shutdown really hit. And in fact, in the third week of March, it's when life changed for Americans sort of suddenly overnight. And in that third week of March, our revenue dropped 60%. We were just, I mean, we were in free fall. And what I think was important was we as a team looked and together with the board said, we think there's a, a long-term opportunity for Etsy. We think we've been running the team in a lean and a very efficient fashion. And we don't plan to make cuts. We think we're already lean and we think that this is something which is driven by an event and will pass. And so we kept the team going. And that wouldn't have been the right decision for everyone. And there's a lot of businesses that needed to make cuts and needed to make cuts early. In the third week of March, it felt pretty awful and pretty gut-wrenching. But pulling up and taking the long view on where are we, and you know, fortunately, we're a cash-generative business, and we'd already made a lot of deep cuts several years ago and been very, very efficient, we could stay break-even under pretty dire scenarios. That was very helpful to us. The fact that we came in lean meant that we could keep going with our momentum because suddenly in the first week of April, our sales exploded. (laughs) And as you've said, in the second quarter, we announced that sales were up 130% year over year. If we had been cutting and pulling back in the third week of March, we would have been in big trouble trying to keep up with the sales surge that happened in late April. So there's a lot in life that's unpredictable and keeping your eye on the prize, I think, is is really important. And have that global perspective data points helped you yes. make decisions. Yeah. And, you know, Hans, that's a great point, too. I mean, we were watching China very carefully. And so we had a team, we had a COVID response team that met weekly starting in late January. So based on all the data that was coming out of China, we were very concerned. And we already had plans in place by mid-February for what happens if everybody needs to work from home and how are we going to deal with. In the first week of March, we closed all of our offices globally. But by that time, we'd already run a global work from home day. We tested all of our systems. We made sure that we were ready. So plan for the worst and hope for the best. But I think keeping that perspective on the medium and the long term, it's hard to say how 2021 is going to play out. We've had a ton of tailwinds from offline being largely shut down. So everyone has to shop online, whether they like it or not. I think they're finding that they like it. What we see is that our customer experience on Etsy is every bit as good as it was pre-pandemic. So I think customers are having a great experience and I'm optimistic about it. The economies in the US and Europe have largely held quite strong, or let's say consumer spending has held quite strong in spite of serious shocks to the economy. 
And I don't know that that's going to continue. We could see a very serious recession with serious consumer spending pullbacks. That would not be an unrealistic scenario at all. And so I think that the shift to online is probably largely permanent. We'll probably see some mitigation when stores open up again, but a lot of habits are being reformed in this moment. And we'll see what happens with the economy. So we are at Etsy staying nimble (laughs) and being prepared for the fact that although things feel very good right now, they might not feel good in a quarter or two, who knows, but we're going to be prepared to respond and react regardless. Yeah, it just feels like e-commerce offers so many more selections and people who haven't tried it now are forced to try it and realize that it is extremely better experience. I agree with that. And, you know, the other thing, Hans, is, is that almost everything in life we do is driven by habit. We are on autopilot with 98 or 99 percent of the decisions we make. And we don't even realize we're on autopilot. We, we just are. And there are very few opportunities for those habits to be reformed. The classic three are when you get married, when you have a baby, and when you move home. Those are like the three times you'll consider changing where you shop or where you bank or things like that. And suddenly, before you make any decision at all about where to shop right now, you've got to stop and think to yourself, are they open? Can they ship on time? And those are habit-breaking moments. So we are investing like crazy right now in marketing and in our customer experience, because we think this is a moment when everyone's shopping habits are up for grabs, and we very much intend to win a large share of that. Correct. We have been seeing this on a couple of occasions now. One way for us to think about the difference in e-commerce platform is uh, the old open versus closed system debate. One could argue that Amazon started off as sort of the iOS of e-commerce. Where on the other end, you have Etsy and, and Shopify and, and Wish and Poshmark that are more of the Android of e-commerce platforms and more open. For people who are starting off thinking about their own creative projects, how would you advise them where to open a shop? Should they open multiple shops and how these platforms are kind of different um, to help them make a better decision of what to do? And if they're picking Etsy, what are the things that they need to be paying attention to uh, to fully leverage and contribute to this community that you have helped to build? Yeah, I think for most people, they don't want to shop. They want sales. And there's a lot of people that will offer you the opportunity to have a shop. And for the sellers on Etsy, I mean, they're artisans. They're craftspeople. They make things, and then they try to sell them. And they are blades of grass in the tornado of e-commerce. And I think it's incredibly difficult for their standalone shop to succeed and getting more and more so over time. And when you put yourself up on a these build-your-own-shop sites, allow you to federate your item onto places like Amazon or, or, or eBay or others where you will be commoditized and racked and stacked versus things that are mass-produced and sold cheap and shipped fast without the opportunity to showcase what's so great about your particular product, which was made with love and care just for the person who's buying it. And so our goal at Etsy is not to give you a shop, it's to give you sales. And the way that we do that is by building a brand that stands for something in the minds of consumers and then lending that brand to our sellers in a way that really creates connection with the buyer's trust and therefore sales. And allowing the what is so special and unique about each seller to really stand out and be highlighted. That's really our goal. And in doing that, 
we need to do things sometimes that are very unpopular with sellers because we look out for the good of the commons. You know, it was actually a question Glenn was asking earlier about refocusing on buyers, which actually I'm realizing now I didn't really address in Glenn's question. So I'll pause and, and sort of talk about that now. There's a lot of things that each individual seller wants. And if you give it to them, you end up with something which makes no sense to buyers. We have 3 million sellers on Etsy. You could end up with 3 million brand promises, 3 million return policies, 3 million free shipping policies. So Etsy is a place where some things ship for free and some things ship really expensive, some things ship fast, some things ship slow, and buyers think to themselves, I have no idea what that means. I'm going to go somewhere else, <laughs> right? So we need to set some standards. And in setting standards, the Etsy brand means something to buyers and is a place buyers want to come and shop. And because of that, all of our sellers are more successful. And so doing what our sellers need not what each of them individually demands, allows them to rise the whole community up and do better. And I think we've seen that. We've seen that conversion rate on the site is much higher than it was before. I'll give you an example, search. Sellers, when I first joined Etsy, would say two things. One, the search engine is terrible, which it needed work for sure. And two, don't you dare change the search engine. (laughs) And they'd say it like in the same sentence and they'd mean both parts of it. I log in every day and I look at where I rank in search and that's how I know how to manage my business. And I've spent time optimizing against SEO. And if you change the search engine, I've kind of got to start over. So don't change search because it's a lot of work for me. But boy, search is really bad. And at the time, we were iterating the search engine once a quarter. Now we iterate one or two times a week. It's made vast improvements. And the one thing I can guarantee is if you log in today and you log in tomorrow, you're going to see something different because we're now very personalized and it depends on the time of day and it depends on who the person is and it depends on a million factors. Like the days where any given keyword search results in the exact same set of listings, like those days are long gone. So it was very disruptive to sellers and they were pretty upset about the fact that we were iterating search really fast, but it created a much better buyer experience. And in creating a much better buyer experience, it created a lot more sales for sellers. And ultimately, that's what they really want. So what we need to do is obsess over the buyer experience. And if we obsess over the buyer experience, we're going to give a really good seller experience. And that's how we prioritize. We start with what buyers need in a way that's consistent with Etsy's value proposition. And we work backwards. And so when I say in a way that's consistent with Etsy's value proposition, we obsess over the buyer experience but with a mind to what's different about us. So the idea that we promise that absolutely everything with Etsy in, in Etsy will arrive within two days, although that is the norm in the market, it's not going to be the norm for Etsy because things that are made just for you are not sitting on a shelf waiting to ship. And so shipping within two days, I'm never, I, I don't see us promising that. I don't see that being part of the brand. I would rather say special takes time. And let me explain why the thing that was made with love and care and why this part of our being different is better. But cost of shipping, everyone expects shipping to be free. There's no such thing as free shipping. There's no parcel service in art that will ship a package from here to there for free, right? What they mean by that is shipping is a cost of goods sold, which has now been incorporated into the item price. So there's no reason Etsy should be different there. If the whole rest of the world has incorporated shipping into the item price, we should too. So we made a huge push last year to get our sellers to incorporate shipping into their item price. And we basically said, you can't be on the first page of search results if you don't do that. Because having items that have separate shipping cost is bad for the brand. 
And sellers were really mad about that. But it drove a lot more buyers and it drove more buyer loyalty. And it was the right thing to do. And they are getting more sales from that. They're benefiting. And so having the conviction to do things that are in their best interest, even if they don't love us at the time, I think has been an important ingredient of success. I do notice that there's quite a big difference in approach between developed markets and developing markets. I'm not sure that the whole is true for you guys as well. In the case of Alibaba, the focus this is trying to start a, in a new market uh, that's very underpenetrated with e-commerce. It had to focus on the interests of the sellers to make sure they have all the sellers that we could sell. And over time, the buyer experience should improve because the selection choices are so much better. And initially, the buyer experience may be more impacted because you're going to have counterfeits and other stuff on it that's not as appropriate. And you're going to have sellers gouge consumers. But even in the emerging market where there are not a lot of great offline choices, the consumers bear that and persevere through it. And over time, the better sellers remain and generate most number of sales. Competing in a developed market, you can't do that because consumers have plenty of choices offline. They just won't come at all. Yeah. So you did exactly the right thing to focus on buyers and their buyer experience or else artisans don't make money. As on some do make money as sellers, the word of mouth effect will happen that, hey, you can make great money here. You should be the burdens on you to figure out how to make a great experience for buyers to buy. And so it's a quite a different dynamic in uh, developed markets. As you continue to expand and will inevitably go into developing markets too, what are sort of the formula you see that's working for you as you penetrate and uh, go deeper and grow with even bigger global business? Well, so a two-sided marketplace is lightning in a bottle. It almost never happens. I mean, you guys are VCs, right? So you know that every year you probably get a thousand pitches for, I'm going to create this two-sided marketplace. And at scale, it's going to be amazing. And 100% of them are right that at scale, a two-sided marketplace is amazing. And roughly 0% of them will succeed at that, right? So in any given year, there's like 2,000 marketplaces that get funded by VCs and usually between zero and one percent of zero and one of them actually becomes a meaningful two-sided marketplace. So statistically speaking, there's a zero percent probability of getting to scale. That's the hard thing, right? Solving the chicken and egg. The day you open, you have no sellers. So buyers show up and there's nothing to buy and so they go away. And you've got no buyers. So sellers show up and they list an item and nobody buys it and they go away. And solving that conundrum, well, basic is actually incredibly hard and very few people solve it. And so you actually have to do both. You have to be very attentive to the needs of sellers and you have to be very attentive to the needs of buyers. At some point, you get to a big enough scale that supply finds demand, that you start obsessing about buyers because sellers just know you and find you and come anyway. For Etsy, like we saw a huge explosion in sales of bread and bread-making products in the month of May. Grocery stores were closed. They were all sold out. No one could buy bread. And so everyone started turning to Etsy for bread. And also people like thought it was fun to make bread at home. So they're doing bread-making products. We had no idea. Like we never expected that that was going to be a thing on Etsy. And, and we had zero hours of effort put against getting supply of bread-making it just happened that when buyers started searching Etsy for bread stuff, bakers started selling on Etsy. And so because Etsy is well known enough, supply just found the demand. But we had to get to the point that we were big enough for that. And that making that pivot, once you are big enough, obsessing almost exclusively about buyers is the right thing to do. And that's a pivot that I think uh, a lot of people don't make. So when you think about international expansion, then for Etsy, I go back to Principle one, which is getting a two-sided marketplace that scales lightning in a bottle. So the day we open in France, 
we have that same chicken and egg conundrum anyone would have, right? So how do we solve that? What is our unique advantage? Well, export-import is our unique advantage. So a seller who lists in Etsy France can sell to the U.S., where we have a very big market. And a buyer who lists on Etsy, a buyer who comes to Etsy France can buy from the U.S., where we have a very big market. And so we machine translate, and we, we have machine translated for a long time, and machine translation is getting better and better. We machine translate everything into a number of languages. And so in the early days in a market, we focus exclusively on export-import. And at some point, you have enough export business, you have enough supply, and you have enough import business, you have enough demand that you can start pointing them at each other. So then we start changing our search algorithms to prioritize local. So now in the UK and in Germany, more than 50% of purchases in those countries are from local sellers. And so now we're investing and we're about to be running TV campaigns and other things where we're investing in those markets as truly local markets, branding them as Etsy in the UK is really a UK first market. But the way we got there was leveraging our advantage in export import. Very interesting. Josh, let's shift gears a little bit. I love the conversation about the lightning in a bottle and how difficult it is to get liquidity on both sides of a marketplace. But obviously, if you do, you can you can move very quickly. It's reminiscent of the conversation Hans and I had with Nate Plecharzik over at Airbnb. What I remember Nate telling us, and we remember we were there in the early days, they had to do a lot of things that were very non-standard and, you know, quote unquote, didn't scale to try to get both sides of the marketplace to work. And I'm curious, obviously, you've made vast improvements as the leader of Etsy, but you did inherit a business that had some scale on bo- both sides of, of the marketplace. If you joined a board today of a, of a small early stage company that was trying to build a marketplace in, in any market, what are some of the things you'd be recommending? What are things you've seen have worked versus kind of the natural challenges you face when you're trying to get a marketplace stood up? I would say the, the number one thing that I've observed and that I would recommend is to find your marketplace incredibly narrowly and incredibly tightly in the early days and then expand out in concentric circles. So I worked for eBay and, you know, I would be launching eBay in a, in a new market and we'd start with just coins and stamps. Like, let's just get supply and demand to meet on coins and stamps. And to your point, Glenn, we do a lot of non-scalable things. We would go to coin and stamp fairs and we would meet with sellers one-on-one and spend like two hours trying to convince them why they should put their stuff up online and then hold their hand to do that. You obviously can't do that at scale. But if we could get like 20 really influential coin sellers and 20 really influential stamp sellers to come online and they could help bring their community with them, that creates created enough liquidity in that one particular vertical to get supply and demand to start meat. And from coins and stamps, maybe we could go to Beanie Babies or Pet Rocks, move out to other collectibles. And from other collectibles, then we could start to move toward, you know, the next category for eBay was typically clothing. And then we can move, and you know, before you know it, you're in autos. And when I say before you know it, like years later, (laughs) not weeks or months later, years later, you're in autos and auto parts and all kinds of things. We needed to start with getting liquidity somewhere and then building out from that from that base. I have one more question for you before we get into our quick fire session. You talk about leadership quite a bit uh, throughout the years. What would be your advice for a young professional as they rise through the ranks? How to become a great a leader? And sometimes there are multiple stakeholders who have conflicting interests they have to balance. 
what would be the sort of advice you would want to give them as they navigate and develop a career? I think for me, every job I've had was a job nobody else wanted. I can't think of a job I've had where six people before me didn't turn it down. Skype, like they tried to get any other CEO who was more qualified than me to take that job and no one would take it. The culture was really challenging. It's a telco regulated business going to zero. I thought, wow, like the effect it has on people's lives is so meaningful that I'm sure we can turn that into a good business. And I'm willing to move my family to Estonia to go and like try to unlock that value. You know, Etsy, like the stock was down 50% from the IPO. Everyone had written it off as this kitschy little not, you know, business that was, I, I mean, I think going to a place where, at least for me, where I have believed there is true and inherent value, where we do something really important and differentiated for the world, but other people are missing it, and then be willing to roll up my sleeves and try to have a really big impact. And by the way, I didn't get fancy titles. I didn't get paid a lot. Like, obviously, things have worked out very well for me at Etsy and at Skype. But all coming up in my career, I was, you know, if you looked at, like, my class at Stanford Business School, I was among the lowest, lower paid people for year after year after year. And I didn't care. That was never the thing. I didn't have, Hans, like, don't believe it. He was this, <laughs> one of the smartest guys in the class. I don't know about that, but we can quantify I wasn't one of the highest paid people for like, the, let's say the first 10 years after business school, because that was never like, am I working on something really interesting where I think that my team and I can have a really outsized impact we can be proud of for a really long time? And eventually I have to believe karma will work, that like good things will come from that. I couldn't agree with more. When you ask me for, for advice on a VC career, that's exactly what, what I said, said told them as well. You, you got to be ready to make unpopular decisions and have the stamina to stick to it when people are making fun of you. You're right. It doesn't matter if you take a very position or you're wrong, but you have to be right and develop a conviction to be able to do that. Okay, let's do our quick fire questions. What's something you have read recently or ever that you will recommend to people and why and how that could help someone to sort of shape their life and develop a career? Uh, I read a ton of biographies. I read almost exclusively biographies. And I think that studying great leaders, be they good or bad people, there's a lot to learn from that. I definitely recommend that. Have you tried Shoe Dog? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Any business biography I've read is super fun. Great. And I mean, so much to learn from all of the stories of business history, right? So much to learn from that. Yeah, I think if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably go get back and get a PhD in history. I just would have a hard time picking a time period because I find them all fascinating. All right. Well, sticking with the historical theme then, if you could construct a the proverbial dinner with three people dead or alive, who would you want to take to dinner and why? Uh, uh, gosh, I'm afraid these are going to be cliche. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, he's a huge hero of mine. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. Those are the first three that come to mind as like incredible leaders who moved the world. I'm not sure I'd want them all three at the same dinner party. Like, what a waste. I'd there might be a little like crowding out time. going on there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what about the Santa Claus seller on Etsy? <laughs> oh, my God. That guy's great. Yeah, <laughs> what a cool guy. 
thank you for watching our, our commercials too. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's an app for those who are just listening to the podcast. There is a seller who makes wooden toys for kids and he makes wonderful wooden toys for kids by hand. And he literally looks like Santa Claus and he is a Santa Claus in that season. He dresses up as Santa Claus and goes to malls and all that, but also just a really warm and, and wonderful guy. So at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that you guys were uh, classmates at Stumber GS3. And you guys took a trip, study trip to Israel together. Uh, plus 20 plus you were 20 uh, of your classmates. What were some of the interesting stories that you can share about that? That's kind of embarrassing uh, about, <laughs> the, uh, about the other. Well, first, I mean, this being Stanford and we had some amazing Israeli classmates who connected us with incredible leaders so we got to meet some of the biggest political and business leaders, you know, living in that day. And we stayed up all night long, uh, enjoying ourselves and taking advantage of all that Israel had to offer such that no, no one was awake, I'm afraid, during many of those meetings. So uh, it may not have been our proudest moment, but it was a great trip. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think we got a lot out of it. Some of that, what we got out of it was unscripted, but it was great. And Josh, I remember actually one of my my first exposures to like a, an experienced VC was on that trip. And I don't remember, I really remember that you were involved somehow in, in maybe helping us get set up with, or you were prominent in the meeting we had with a VC, maybe from Jerusalem Venture Partners, or I can't remember the firm, but it was a great introduction to kind of innovation in Israel. I had always thought of Israel as kind of a, a land of like a, re a religious homeland but not a place where people were kibbutzim were the, the way that people lived, not uh, capitalism and such kind of energy and innovation. And I think on that trip, I was really shocked by how much energy there was on the street and how excited people were to go start new things. And now having been to, to Beijing and Singapore and other centers around the world, seeing that energy in other places, it brings me back always to that trip. And and what I felt like when we were there it was really fun. So much entrepreneurial energy in Israel. It's an incredibly entrepreneurial culture. But actually, as I think about it, in all seriousness, for the Israel study trip, one of the companies that we met, Glenn, was, I don't know if you'll remember, but Vocal Tech. So Vocal Tech was the first voice over IP company. And we met them in the summer of 1996 when we were there for this Israel study trip. And I would later go on to be the CEO of Skype which I had no idea that was going to happen, right? But Vocal Tech was Skype. It was just five years too early. Exactly the right technology, exactly the right idea, just, just, just five wrong years timing. too early. Yeah. We know in Silicon Valley that being too early is the same thing as being wrong. So timing is everything. I'm going to end this with one important question, very uh, relevant for the context we're in. Over 80% of your uh, sellers are women. We must have some seen some of the incredibly inspirational stories about some of these amazing sellers. Uh, that's life changing. Feel free to take some time. Um, can you think of one or two anecdotes that you you can share with us? Sure. I mean, so many. But you know, we have a a woman who sells on Etsy, and she was a seamstress in a bridal factory who was working. 16-hour shifts, trying to raise her daughter and really working very hard for very little money. And she opened a shop on Etsy making her own bridal dresses. And she's built a big and thriving business. And now she's got a lot of her own employees, and but has been able to really provide a great living for her family 
from her, you know, the beautiful work that she does making beautiful dresses. And we have so many stories like that of people who've been able to really build brands for themselves and build a thriving business and do what they love and provide for their whole community and lift up their whole community. It's, it's a really incredibly rewarding and really centering part of, of what we do at Etsy. If someone's a young, aspiring uh, seller on Etsy, what would be some of the important things that uh, sellers should pay attention to and think about? First, make something a little different. The temptation is to go look at what's already popular and selling on Etsy, but it's just you're going to be in a, a bit of a race to the bottom there on price. So be creative and think about something that you can make that you think there is a community of people who need. And it doesn't need to be an enormous community, right? It just should be a little bit unique. And then photography and branding matters. So take really good photographs, think about the name of your shop and create a little bit of a brand identity around what that shop looks like and stands for, because it turns out that customers really respond well to that. Uh, that last question, I'm not sure you can share if you cannot completely understand, uh, since you're probably trade a company. Give us a range or a sense of what some of the largest sellers are doing on Etsy on, in terms of GMS annually. I don't think we've disclosed a lot of specifics, but, you know, we certainly have sellers selling more than a million dollars a year on Etsy. So the idea that you can go from nothing and grow to be selling more than a million dollars a year on Etsy and with 20 cents of startup cost. I mean, the really great thing about Etsy is you don't need to rent any retail facility. You don't need to hire employees in the beginning. You don't even need to buy a lot of supplies. As you get sales, you make the product and then you sell. So the cost to start a business, it costs 20 cents to list an item on Etsy. So for 20 cents, you can get, get in business and get going and then grow, you know, grow from there. All right. You, you'll convince me. It's a big time. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Sounds Thank like it. So much, I man. thought, Hans, I was going to convince you to start a shop on it. <laughs> this whole uh, VC I, thing has run its course. Yeah. <laughs> it's time. Hans's hats. Right. Hans's hats. There you go. There you go. There you go. I'll be an early customer, Hans, if you set it up. That's good. Josh, thank you so much. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.